Well, this looks like yet another books podcast from your very good friends at Books of the Year. I'm Simon and he's Matt. There's no buzzing. There's no. Uh, there's no strimmering going on. No, no, end. there isn't. Uh, they they managed to keep doing that for it felt ages. It was like it felt like about a week that they were doing the strimming, but that's now ended. They do have some workmen over there. I can see from the loft window at the moment, but uh, they're being very quiet. Uh, no doubt wanting to hear the rest of this podcast without having to download it or just my side of it, something like that. But it's um, gorgeous weather at the moment here. Whereabouts are you? Well, I'm uh, I'm in uh, a small room out on the coast. Good. And, um, and I have a mug of lemon and ginger tea. In fact, today's podcast is brought to you <laughs> in association Seamless. with... Here we go. In association with tea pigs. Because when it comes to tea bags, I only ever use tea pigs. There's something classy about them that my grandmother would approve of. Anyway, I'm currently the lemon and ginger is terrific. Their chamomile uh, is fabulous, and Mrs. Mayo says that their peppermint is also extremely good. Plus, they have a wild berry flavour, which, when you pour hot water on, is very, very blue to start with, and then it goes purple, which makes it quite trippy. A purple so I just drink. want to make it. Yeah, I just want to make it very clear, like Ribena, you know. Oh, right, yeah. Books of the Year is brought to you in association with, even though they know nothing about it, tea pigs. <laughs> yeah. My tea. choice of tea bags. Okay, is it, is, is it like fruity, fruity tea, something like that? Yeah. Well, they, yes, they do. They, yeah. they, and they do Earl Grey and they do all the, and they do green tea, which I drank uh, quite a lot before it made Do they do sick. normal tea? Do they do like tea that I would drink, as in, you know, just tea? Well, they don't know anything that's just called tea. It'll always have, like, Earl Grey or something like that, you know? Okay, right. Yeah, that sounds fabulous. Yeah, can't wait. Oh, thank Hello. you. Hello. You... <laughs> oh, we were just making up ads, Robert. I don't know. I know. It's, it was riveting. <laughs> oh, don't come all sarcastic. <laughs> no, I was just sitting here thinking, well, this is, this is good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> wow. This is sounding like the beginning yes. of the Alistair Campbell he was equally unimpressed by the fact we're yeah. making up ads where do you get your tea from robert harris i get my tea uh yorkshire uh oh, you right. know the whatever it is yeah that's the one we have we have about well, 600 bags laid down from lockdown so that'd be yorkshire tea then yeah yorkshire tea it's called um and uh, that's mainly what i drink i drink something rather sinister occasionally called red bush yeah, I tried that. That's kind of caffeine-free, isn't it? It's one of those kind of naturally grown yes. things. Yes. Do you not like I, it? No, not very much. But I found I, I couldn't drink coffee in the way I used to. I drank so much when I was writing this book that I think I poisoned myself and I can't drink it much anymore. Oh, okay. That's it. Nicely worked to get it back to the book. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, let's Have I say, mentioned the book? Yeah, so, no. Robert, so so Robert is with us again to talk about V2, which is new book. Can I just start with the fact that you, you make it, you, you write in the book that you, I found I found this enormously de- depressing as I'm trying to wade my way through a new book that I'm trying to write, is that you you started and finished this during lockdown, uh, which is which is amazing. So uh, presumably you, you know, you've done the research over a, over a number of years, Robert, and then it was, was it the lockdown that gave you the time that you could just uh, get to it? Well, I normally write between uh, January and June, if I can. I mean, it's an old, it's the old journalist in me. I love uh, 
deadlines. Well, I don't love them, but I find that it, they make me work better, that, you know, the adrenaline makes me see things I wouldn't see otherwise. So I kind of uh, start about January the 15th and try and end about in the last week of June. Uh, so if you work it out, I'd, uh, I'd written about a quarter of the book, actually, when the whole pandemic struck and we were locked down. And okay. then for three weeks I stopped and then I started again. So explain the, the genesis of this uh, of this story, Robert, and, uh, and how you came to write about the V2 rockets. Well, you know, I've always been interested in the war and I've got a few books on uh, V2, uh, but I'm not really thinking of writing a novel about it. And then uh, in 2016 almost exactly four years ago, September, there was an obituary in the Times of a woman called Eileen Younghusband, who just died aged 95, and she had been in the Women's Royal Air Force, and uh, she had been sent to Mechelen, a small town in newly liberated Belgium, in November 1944, as part of an eight-woman team um, to try and combat the V-2 missiles, which were being launched from the Dutch coast, by the Germans, which was about 70 miles away. And uh, they, their job was to calculate the curve of the rocket. And if they could do it, the, you know, the rocket was launched, it hit London within five minutes, they would pick up the rocket as it was taking off. They would then have the coordinates of where it struck London. And putting these two figures together, they could calculate the curve where it had been launched from. And if they could do this within six minutes... Uh, then the RAF could get a Spitfire fighter bomber over the coast just in time to try and hit the launch site it had come from. I just thought that sounded a wonderful story because, she, you know, she was billeted on a local family and it was, you know, bitter, freezing winter and the Germans had only just left and it was considered quite dangerous still. And th that was the start. I thought, well, this is a wonderful character to write about. Was there a quickening of the pulse? When, as you were reading this, uh, as you as the pen is started to to drop, and you thought, "Oh, hang on, there's, there's something here." Yeah, immediate actually. So I mean, I was having as it happened, I was was seeing my publisher that very day, and I said to her, "God, look at this! I saw in the Times obituary today," uh, and she said, "Yeah, you should write that." <laughs> it's taken four years, but. Um, I've never lost interest in it because having, you know, um, explored her character and what the what the British were doing, I then looked at what the Germans were doing on the coast, um, these artillery regiments firing these ballistic missiles, big missiles, 46 foot long they were, um, and how that had all come about, where, you know, who built them, um, how they worked, what sort of men they were, sheltering in the woods near this out-of-season, uh, you know, Dutch seaside town. And so I had the two halves of the story. And, uh, you know, I, I, I could just feel the location and the time yeah. and then the people. Did it feel like, a, in, in, in some kind of sense, a companion piece to Enigma, in as much as we're at, we're at the well, we're not in the heart of the war, but we we it's in the war, and there's maths and slide rules, and all that is at the heart of your story. Yes, and you know, I mean, I'm very interested in the war, but I'm not really interested in macho hero types. I'm interested in people a bit lot more like me, really, uh, who um, were sort of behind the lines and were doing things, and maybe were presented with moral dilemmas 
So these two characters, one a rocket engineer, not a soldier, and the other uh, a woman who's you know, gone straight from university into the Women's Royal Air Force and who has been interpreting photographic intelligence, you know, just sitting in a country house in England looking at photographs. These two characters uh, balanced one another uh, and, uh, you know, the war wasn't just about heroic soldiers, it was about other types of people as well. Um, yes, and this idea also of brains trying to defeat brawn, uh, which is very much an enigma. Um, I wanted to, you know, it's something I'm always drawn to. Yes, and so so just before uh, Matt uh, chips in here, Rudy Graf is our engineer. Kay Caton Walsh is our uh, officer who gets uh, moved from uh, the UK into into Belgium, and they are a fascinating uh, couple. Can you is Rudy? He's kind of the one thing I I, I learned. That's one of the many things I learned is how important the rocket technology which the Germans were working on, how important that became. And he, his dream, as you write, Rudy Graf, is what he wanted to do was send rockets to the moon. He didn't want to be firing them on Britain. No, I mean, there were this group of really teenagers uh, in the 1920s, uh, early 1930s, who used to play around building homemade rockets on waste ground to the north of Berlin. They were originally hired by the German cinema company to uh, do a promotion for a Fritz Lang science fiction movie of silent black and white movie about landing a woman on the moon so that it started in that way and Werner von Braun who's a character in the novel his came from an aristocratic family and his father was in the cabinet of von Papen the chancellor immediately before Hitler came to power and he seems to have put them in touch with the army and the army came and looked at what they were doing. And then the Nazis came in and money was unlimited. And suddenly this bunch of young people, now in their early 20s, found themselves with unlimited resources to develop what they had as a dream of going to the stars as a weapon. And so it was a trade-off. You can have all the money you want within reason uh, to build your rocket, but it needs to become a weapon. And hence the V2 was born and there's a sort of Faustian pact there, you know. Uh, so Rudy Graf is a made-up figure, but he's a composite of other people around at that time. Uh, and it enabled me, the book takes place over four days in November, but he's thinking about the past, he's troubled about what he's finding himself doing. And that was a way of bringing in the history of the rocket uh, within the novel. Because, I mean, I find all that sort of stuff fascinating, maybe too fascinating, but, uh, you know, how it worked, what it was. It's almost a third character in the novel, the V2, um, you know, travelling at supersonic speeds into space and hitting London. It seems so futuristic for 1944. Matt. That's what I want to talk about, uh, Robert, is, is the V2 rocket itself. Because as you've, you've already mentioned that they're launching these across the channel and the first time we see one um, exploding or, you know, making contact with the ground is um, in central London. But you then also, you list off um, a, a list of places within the sort of greater London 
that these V2 rockets are hitting. And these are certainly not military installations. And anyone who knows the sort of vague geography of London will tell you that these are very much outlying areas. And I wondered whether was was that deliberate? Was it? I mean, obviously these rockets are unmanned, and um, so they're being fired. And w were they just inaccurate, or were the Germans deliberately going for? random locations to instill fear in the op in the population that these rockets could hit just anywhere you do, you didn't need to be near a, a military installation or a target or anything like that these rockets could come from the skies and rain terror from anywhere well that was it yes exactly right the v2 the v uh, was a vengeance weapon a retaliation weapon and it was designed uh, to just uh, intimidate, terrify the population of London and cause as much damage as possible. The the Germans could have given it radio guidance, but they figured out that the British would jam the radio guidance system. So it was purely ballistic. It, it, it was launched from woods uh, near the Hague on the sea coast, and it would uh, rise to a height of 60 miles. And, 60 miles. It would be travelling 3,500 miles an hour, uh, the engines would cut off uh, after 65 seconds, and then it would just describe this parabolic arc, as it's called, ballistic arc. Uh, they were they were aimed at um, Charing Cross Station, which was considered to be the geographical centre of London, and anything within five miles of Charing Cross Station was considered on target. Um, and, but a lot of them fell outside that range. It was an incredibly unreliable weapon, uh, one in ten of them blew up before it had even cleared the Dutch coast. Uh, and they came down off the coast of Alborough in the North Sea. Uh, they were some, I think one flew as far as St Albans. They were, it was a very random weapon, but, and, but it was a terrifying weapon because it came in at twice the speed of sound. And all across London you'd hear a sonic boom and then the thud of the explosion as it hit. And they buried itself quite deep because it's travelling so fast and could damage buildings within a radius of a quarter of a mile. And, you know, the Germans fired 1,300 of these at London. So it's an extraordinary story and not really much covered, in fiction at least. The I felt as though in just in the first few chapters, as Kate, Kate and Walsh, she's in, the, uh, she's in a building when, it, when it's bombed. I felt, Robert, as though we were in there with her. You know, that those eyewitness accounts of the kind of drop in pressure and the silence and so on. Where, where, did, you, where did you uncover that from? Because that, that felt to me like the tiny little details, which we, we, you know, we expect in a Robert Harris novel, but it was extraordinary. I really felt that those were the tiny little details which brought the whole thing very much home. Um, well, there's a wonderful social historian of the Second World War called Norman Longmate, um, who's dead now, but he wrote some terrific books, and one of them was Hitler's Rockets, and that was full of eyewitness accounts of the V2, uh, which, you know, readers sent to him. So you get really first-hand authentic testimony from people who were alive at the time. Uh, and, it, you know, the, the, my book has the Warwick Court rocket, which was very famous Saturday morning at the end of November, hit uh, just off Chancery Lane, um, that whole area, if you go down between the ends of court and London, is modern offices now because so much was destroyed by that rocket. Uh, and then later that morning, another one came down on the roof of the Woolworths shop in Deptford in New Cross Road. That killed 160, mainly women and children. 
And survivors of that relate, you know, this strange, sudden, eerie silence and a sense of pressure in the ears and the air pressure as the rocket is coming in, and then just an enormous explosion. Uh, so, yes, I tried to draw on uh, as much eyewitness testimony as I could, and I was fascinated by the fact that Londoners who'd lived through the heavy blitz of 1940 and 1941 and the doodlebugs, the pilotless bombs uh, from, the begin- from June, July 1944, they all nevertheless found, or most of them found, that the V2 was more frightening because there was simply no warning. It was too it traveled too fast for you to see it, and it was indiscriminate. And there were seven or eight of them going off over London at the height of the campaign every day. So, yeah. you know, if you think of the terror that's spread by, say, a knife attack now on a on a bridge in London, uh, you know, the, this is infinitely greater. Can I can I just say what I particularly enjoyed about that um, the, the 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 that se- sequence where we meet K for the first time and um, uh, and that first V two bomb attack and it's going to be slightly surprising but I'll say it anyway is that um, K at that point when the bomb hits is in the middle of having what uh, we would euphemistically call a dirty weekend uh, so she is with a um, uh, a married man in a in a flat and they're uh, getting up to uh, sort goings on and uh and uh, the reason why i loved it is because and simon will know this well there is a um code in horror movies that if in the opening scene there are people doing saucy things uh they are going to die uh, because <laughs> that that's what that's basically what they are going to die because of the yeah. saucy things that they're doing and uh, i wondered whether i i wonder whether it was a deliberate act by you a conscious effort to have them doing something saucy you know spoiler alert Obviously, Kay is a main character in this book. She doesn't die in that opening attack. But were, were you thinking about that when you wrote it, or did you just, did you just need to find some interesting way of, of introducing one of these main characters? Well, I know I didn't think of it in uh, a moralistic way. Uh, to begin with, I thought that she would simply be asleep somewhere and would hear a bang uh, and would go and look at the um, smouldering rubble. Uh, and then go into work. And then I thought, as I came closer to starting writing, well, that's a bit tame. You know, if she's really going to be invested in this story, the damn thing should drop on her head. Uh, (laughs) So that was, to put it bluntly, that was, uh, I put her, you should always try and put your characters, your main characters at the heart of the action as it's going on. So that's where she was. What would she be doing? Well, um, you know, I needed to give her some reason to want to get out of England and and go and try and fight the V2s. And uh, this uh, sort of sense of guilt, as, uh, having been with this married man, uh, gave her a kind of motivation. Um, so it was as simple as that, really. Uh, there's a, almost my favourite line of the book is towards the end, her rather racy friend, Barbara, says to her, you do realise every time you kiss a man, the Germans drop a rocket on it. It's sort of of true in the novel. Today's podcast is brought to you (laughs) in association with T-Pigs. Can I mention one other character, uh, Robert? Because you mentioned the V2, obviously. You mentioned Rudy, mentioned Cabe. And you've mentioned Werner von Braun just sort of in passing. But he's very much the kind of sparky presence behind everything that we learned from Rudy. And, of course, he went on to be, you know, he's very, 
He's a real character. He did exist. He was head of the Nazi rocket program, and he went on to to work in America. But he's he's like a supporting actor, but he's he's the star of the show in some ways. Yes, well, you know, Simon, as, as a writer yourself, that the uh, there's a, there are characters who are dynamic, who drive the action, who uh, uh, create the story. And Werner von Braun was such a man. He was uh, only he's only thirty two at the time this novel takes place, but he's uh, uh, he was the driving force behind the German rocket program. He was a brilliant, hands on, dirty hands, as they call it in as they call it in America. I think engineer that he could get down onto a uh, you know, a machine tool bench and work on an engine at the same time as having a lot of theoretical grasp of physics. Uh, and he was very charming. He was very good looking. He looked almost like a caricature, Aryan Superman. Uh, and he was brilliant at organising a huge team. So he ended up residing um, as head of development uh, over 20,000 people at Peenemunde, their rocket base. And he was uh, kind of like a Faustian figure. You know, he, he did a pact with the devil, with Hitler, in order to build these rockets, which he drove through. I, I don't think he ever really thought of them as very sophisticated or effective weapons. Certainly, sorry, sophisticated weapons, but not very effective. They only delivered a ton of high explosives, where a Lancaster bomber, one bomber, could drop six tons. Uh, but, you know, he, he sold it to Hitler like a traveling salesman. Yeah. And by the year, at least a year before the end of the war, he was well aware that Germany was going to lose and was already thinking of how he could sell all his technology to the Americans so that he could continue his dream of space flight um, with, you know, with the victorious uh, Allied power. So he's a very interesting man. And, my, and, and Rudy, my, my fictional character, falls under his spell. Um, really, that's his story. How worried were the were the were the Allies with the British, Robert, about about the damage that was happening from the V two rockets? Because in a sense, it's a sideshow. It didn't make any difference to the course of the war, and yet, as you described in this book and as you've told us, they caused devastating, uh, terrorizing effect on Londoners. Yes, the I mean, the the British realized what was going on definitively in around May 1943 when they photographed one of these uh, rockets, which were, you know, tall, 46 feet high, on a, you know, waiting to be launched in the Baltic. And uh, in August, uh, they sent the whole of the frontline strength of the RAF to bomb Pinamunda, 600 planes, 4,200 aircrew. But they didn't really succeed in disrupting production, which the Germans transferred to an underground factory. Um, They were relieved that it was only a one-ton warhead and not a ten-ton warhead, which at one time they had feared. Uh, And, of course, by that time, Germany was losing and it wasn't going to win them the war. But it could do a lot of damage. It killed a lot of people, I think 2,700. And uh, it did a lot of damage because of this penetration of the earth um, that... It said that it damaged 600,000 buildings in London and was a major contributory factor to the post-war housing crisis. So, you know, this was a serious threat, but it wasn't going to knock Britain out of the war. I just, uh, uh, um, just to take you back to Werner von Braun um, uh, briefly, um, uh, Robert, 
I'm I'm intrigued by this character, and I, I'm actually I'm very interested in what your opinion is of this real life um, person, because as you say, you, uh, and certainly the way you describe him in the book, he's not an ideological Nazi. He's going along with this because he knows he he's got this program that he can sell to Hitler, and Hitler will give him enough money to be able to run this because his main ambition is to reach the moon, and he has no qualms about swapping sides come uh, as soon as he sees the way that the war is going. However. I, I think you would make a strong argument that this man was a war criminal. Um, certainly in the production of the of the V2 rockets, they're using slave labor. Um, and um, obviously, you know, the, the, the firing rockets that are that are killing civilians uh, virtually all over London. So I, I, but I'm interested in what your opinion is of this guy. Was he was he you know, he may perhaps he had noble intentions in wanting to reach the moon, but he appeared to just be prepared to do, do a deal with anyone and at any cost yes i i mean what in this i can i have i can understand what happened i mean you start by building the rocket then the nazis come to power so then if you're going to keep getting the money you have to look sympathetic to the regime so he joined the nazi party i don't think he was a nazi but he joined the party as a lot did and then he was given honorary rank by the ss and by this point you're quite you know deeply in and implicated uh, and then he sells the project to Hitler who sees it. he sells it at the time of the defeat at Stalingrad so Hitler sees this as a possibility of snatching defeat uh, victory from the jaws of defeat uh, and then comes the, the the manufacturer of this missile which he succeeded in building and that's when the SS really step in and they build an underground factory, which the British can't bomb, in the centre of Germany. And to build it, uh, they simply shipped in tens of thousands of slave labourers. They gave them no shelter accommodation except in the tunnels they were blasting out, little food. They worked them to death, essentially. Uh, and 20,000 men died building the factory and building the V2. And Von Braun is head of production of the V2. So it's impossible, really, to think that he wasn't aware of what was going on. Um, he was saved, in a way, I think, by the fact that he was not a Nazi and was very sceptical of Germany's chances and was arrested by the Gestapo, astonishingly, at the height of all of this and, in, and kept in a cell for a couple of weeks. And that must have been a kind of, you know, get out of jail free card with the Americans at the end of the war, because, you know, it suggested he wasn't an ardent Nazi. Uh, he was lucky to get away with it, however, and it was because of the circumstances of the time. And by the 1970s, um, one of his leading colleagues had to flee America because he was likely to be indicted for war crimes. And Von Braun died in the 70s, but I think he would have had a pretty miserable old age if he'd lived a lot longer, uh, because the past was by then catching up with him. He'd served his usefulness. The Americans had got to the moon using his technology, uh, and now uh, retribution was coming his way, I think. So, Robert, how it's, it sounds from what you're saying as though the, the, the V2 project was expensive, the weapons were inaccurate, however many horrendous deaths it caused, and that the Allied operation against them, that wasn't very successful either. Yeah, the whole thing is a study in futility. I mean, with the, 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 yes, you're right, the missile wasn't very effective. 
it was enormously expensive. The Germans spent more on it, literally more on it, than the Americans spent on building the atom bomb. Um, and the story that first attracted me, uh, in, that was in the Times obituary of Eileen Young husband, she said that on their first shift, uh, they were told they destroyed two German launch sites because they'd made the calculations in time. After a while of research, I discovered that there's no evidence that the British ever managed to hit uh, one of these launch sites. Um, so both sides, in a way, were in, trapped in this futile battle. Um, the rocket troops were told that they destroyed Leicester Square and Piccadilly, hit the Houses of Parliament, the Tower of London, three bridges over the Thames. Well, we know that that's not true. And the, the women, the wives working in um, Belgium, were told that they were pretty well destroyed all the German launch sites. Manifestly, they didn't do that because the Germans were still launching these missiles at the end of March 1945. And the last one hit Stepney and killed 140 people uh, on something like March the 27th. So, you know, at one point I thought, well, really, uh, does that knock away the whole reason for writing the book? And I thought, no, actually, um, it's not a heroic story like, you know, Enigma, which turned into a great triumph. Um, it's about how futile and awful and wasteful war is, um, and, and it seemed to me it was worth writing very much for that reason. So did, did you find it quite a depressing book to write? Uh, no, I didn't, to be honest with you. I found it rather exhilarating. Um, I decided on this very tight time frame, which I like to put in books if I can, and the back and forth, you know, a chap alternating chapters told from the point of view of these two main characters. And I tried to write it quite tightly. And as I say, I was writing it under lockdown so that, um, you know, 75% of it was written in, in pretty, you know, rough circumstances in a way, the sense of what was going on beyond the study. It was a, it was a refuge for me to, to retreat to this imaginary world, which I could sort of control, really. And the, the parallels between uh, Britain facing the virus and Britain facing the V2, I don't want to push them too far, but nevertheless, you know, I've got a sense of fear and disruption and national unity and, uh, you know, I think that fed through into the book. I mean, the great ce celebrations of VE Day occurred while I was writing it. You know? uh, speaking of parallels, um, you, tweeted, you tweeted a few days ago, and I, uh, and I applauded as I read it. I actually, I, I applauded it because it was the most Robert Harris tweet of all time. But you said, uh, I can't help reflecting on the sad news overnight from America is the death of uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, that it was the deaths of the consuls Panzer and is it Hershius or Hertius? Yeah, Hertius. Yes. Hertius, uh, both April 43 BC, that suddenly upended all Cicero's careful calculations and dealt a fatal blow to the <laughs> Roman Republic. So, so we rely yes, on I'm you, I'm sorry. No, it was, sorry. It, was it was terrific. Someone... I was going to just ask you to, to you know, uh, elaborate on that just a little. <laughs> Someone tweeted, I often feel that when I'm coming back from a Millwall match. And <laughs> I had to say that's a fair cop. I didn't, you know how terrible Twitter is. You think of something, oh, that's, yeah, I'll make that observation, see if it interests people. And afterwards you think that was a bit of a <laughs> Herbertish thing to write. Uh, but 
there was a serious point in it, I suppose, in that, um, you know, un the unexpected uh, mortality of people can have a huge effect. And uh, uh, if the death of this uh, Supreme Court justice leads to a huge constitutional clash between Trump and the Democrats, if, if each side weaponizes it, it's exactly the sort of divisive thing that can have unpredicted consequences. And Cicero, uh, you know, in my trilogy of books about him, at the end, he thinks he's going to be triumphant. And it looks as though he's going to be able to beat Mark Antony and preserve the Roman Republic, its democracy. And then, unbelievably, the two consuls die within about two days of each other. And suddenly, the whole thing collapses around his ears. And, you know, once endlessly drawn to this parallel between what's happened in, in America over the last few years and the way the Roman Republic collapsed into kind of anarchy and civil war. And, you know, there, there are worrying trends underway there. You know, democracy is not necessarily the natural state of man at all. Uh, maybe, maybe democracy was the thing that flowered for a century or so and then disappears. Uh, just as it did in ancient Rome. So that was behind what was behind my pretentious uh, tweet, for <laughs> no, which I uh, apologise. Uh, no, no, no. I, no, I admired it very much. I, th I thought it was terrific because I thought, well, if you got Robert on the podcast, you need to just get some reflections on the state of, of, of where we are. Are you, are you gloomy? Uh, is, uh, can you give us any reason to be cheerful at all, Robert? Well, no, I'm naturally quite a cheerful uh, person, and yes. uh, you know, for, you know, human beings are endlessly ingenious and surmount any challenges that are thrown at them by uh, nature or indeed by their own uh, inclinations. So, you know, broadly speaking, I'm I'm optimistic, but uh, politically, I'm, I you know, we're we're obviously in very choppy water, and I think that the next few years are going to be. Um, uh, a challenge, let's put it that way. And in America, you know, great powers, dominant world powers, generally last for about a century. The Portuguese, then the Spanish, then the French, then the British, then the Americans. Um, you know, the American century is sort of coming to a close. And you can see that America is sort of paralyzed as a, as a state now and divided. And, and that is perturbing because, you know, clearly they're about to be overtaken economically by China. And uh, what is that going to mean for the world? And, and, and on top of that, of course, we've got all the after effects that will come from this pandemic. You know, normally in history, when there's been a great global pandemic, there's been political turmoil that's followed it. So, you know, these are going to be lively times, I think. So, but apart from that, you're quite cheery. <laughs> I yeah, but say, I, as, as I say, I'm cheery because, you know, life for all of us is, an, is a series of problems that come along and that by and large you can get around or get over. And, you know, we have been very fortunate. I'm 63 and I've had a life that's been pretty peaceful and prosperous. Uh, and it's, you know, it's been a great period in the world to be alive. Well, now, you know, the experiences of one's grandparents and parents, one feels that it's our turn now to be tested mm. by bigger events, things bigger than we are. And what are you working on next, Robert? Can you tell us? Well, I've, you know, I've not long finished this one, but I do have a couple of ideas for another book, um, which I'd like to get on with. And it looks as though I'm going to have plenty of, t 
plenty of opportunity <laughs> to sit quietly at home and work on them. Uh, now, uh, Robert is not done with us because on a separate podcast, there'll be uh, Robert Harris's uh, Q&A. So um, look elsewhere uh, to download that one. But for the meantime, in association with T-Pigs, uh, V2 is new from Robert Harris. Robert, it's always a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks, Simon. Thanks, Matt. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.